It's so, so important for our humanity, for our hearts, for our spirituality to connect with the arts. And we do it all the time without maybe being conscious about it. But we use it constantly to connect with our emotions and with each other. That was Danica Churchich, and this is Nordic Portraits. Danica Churchich is an acclaimed actor of both stage and screen who became a household name with her Bodil Award-winning performance in Billy August's 2014 film Silent Heart. She has since established herself as a leading name within Denmark and abroad, be it high-profile series such as The Bridge, Equinox, and Stephen King's The Mist, through to her theatrical portrayals of Lulu and Joan of Arc. Her prodigious talent and prolific dedication to the craft culminated in her being awarded the 2020 Danish Crown Prince Couples Prestigious Culture Award for her, and I quote, tremendous bravery and uncompromising artistic contribution. Danica, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you so much. I wondered if we could start by going back to January 2015. Yeah. Where you just enjoyed this meteoric rise having featured as the lead in a number of cinematic hits. And then you returned to the stage for a production at Hussel's Theatre, whereby you were to perform a 90-minute monologue. Naked monologue called shit, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it, Danica. Um, alone, naked on stage yeah. to a packed crowd every right, night. Right, right. I was just curious if you could share a little bit about what that experience was like and what drew you to that at that particular point in your career. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, at that point, there was a festival at Hussel's Theatre. They had this drama festival every summer that I really, really enjoyed performing at and coming to see. And it was all these new works from all over Europe, new voices. And I had done the shit monologue as a part of this festival in 2014 and was completely drawn to it. It's an Italian written piece about a young <laughs> young woman trying to make it in Berlusconi's TV empire. And I was just extremely drawn and hit by the text, by the expressiveness of the text. And it's just very rare that I read a text that talks to so many sides of me. Also, it was extremely political as well. It was very feminist as well. You know, there was just so many, and, and had this kind of Italian Dario Fosque insanity. So I just knew with that text, I have to do this. I have to do it. And it has to be now. And if they're not saying, yes, I'm going to take it somewhere else. I have to do it. So it wasn't even like, should I, there, there was not, I didn't even have a evaluation with myself whether to do it. It was just a clear, that's a heart project. And it felt like it just resonated with everything in me. But something like that, where you are literally mm. bearing yourself to a public. Right, right, right. Does fear at all enter the equation or are you just so I mean, I think fear is always going to be a bit a part of it, but a healthy fear, like the fear of being, of course, nervous and I have my doubts. I think that will always be part of being an actor of that questioning, which I think is healthy as well. But of course, you know, the first couple of times I stood naked on stage, take some guts, take some courage. But for me, it was so much 
the nudity was so much a, a, the um, the embodiment of the character, and the character didn't have a name; it was just the woman. So it became this. It never became private as my own private body. It was a very very important step to take for making the text even more powerful. That it's the female body in all its ages and how it's being used in all forms and matters, you know. Did you experience a level of vulnerability that you hadn't before, given this intense connection you describe you had with the audience? Um, yeah, definitely. But I also felt, I, I really felt it as well as this crazy tour de force of like what I had within me. And of course, a huge vulnerability in the fact that it was really just me and the audience. And of course, every night it was like, I remember the first line and I hope the rest comes to me. That was, of course, an anxiety every night, but it came and, and it was very empowering, really, even though it was such a tragic text and so hard. And it felt like I was running a marathon each night, you know, but I had the audience. And even though I was sitting naked on this pedestal for an hour there is movements and everything, even, you know, words are movement. Every little, everything is a movement in a way. And it was amazing to really look audience into the eyes every night and have them as my co-actors in a way. Yeah, so it was definitely very, very empowering because I felt like I could just explode in all ways. I felt very authentic in it. And the fact that being alone also gives you a huge freedom of saying, oh, let's try something different tonight. It just felt like this very organic space. Yeah, I was curious about that. When you're alone on stage yeah. and you're carrying the whole thing, yeah. you are then the sole driver of the mm -hmm. performance. But what I did feel like was, you know, there were like four or five spotlights and blackouts, which was basically the structure of the play. And I had one night, there was a technical, uh, like something happened. We were on tour and... At the end, the blackout didn't, something happened, didn't work. I saw the technician panicking up in the back and I had to stand up at the end in a blackout. And then there was a little spotlight on my face and I sang the national anthem, Italian national anthem. And the blackout just didn't come. And that was really, really, that became very private. And I felt, wow, it's so important. Even when it seems so... Um, I'm sitting naked, it's all really out in the open, you know, but if those five blackouts, which is the actual structure of the play, if that doesn't happen, it suddenly falls apart or suddenly it is me naked on stage. So I really felt the difference at that point, you know, how, how important it is. And, you know, I think some people said afterwards, really? Yeah, I mean, what's the problem? You were, come on, it's just, you're naked all the time. Like, what's the big issue? It's like, it's a huge issue. I mean, that's the whole scenography. That's the whole body of the piece. And if those five points are not on point, I'm really then naked on stage. So that was interesting to feel that contrast between private and being on stage. So this, almost, you almost describe it as this sacred uh, yeah. element of yeah. being on stage. Yeah. When were you first introduced to that? Mm. Was there a particular moment in your childhood when you first fell in love with theatre? Mm, not, I, I, I don't really recall anything in particular being younger. Of course, I always had a, a huge drive to act out and to sing and to, uh, you know, school projects always had to be in some creative form or something like that. But 
I would say it came much later when I actually did the theater school in Northern California that I really understood what it means, this sacred place, which it is on stage. Yeah, I would say it was much later, actually. Because I had many years also in high school that I was also wanting to direct, actually, and direct movies, actually documentary filmmaking. I was very interested in it. And I started at the university at Film and Media Studies, but felt like I needed my body to be in the work as well. So I went to this one-year program, which was physical theater up in Humboldt County in California, which was filled with mask work and clown work, Commedia dell'arte and melodrama as well. And there I really understood. That's where I really had the wake-up call of this is what I need to do because it just, on so many levels, mixed all the things that I loved both the analytical, the intellectual part, the sensual part, the fact that you can't do it alone, you're always in an ensemble in some way if it's a film or theater. And all of those things just made me, okay, that's my way. I'd love to discuss that a little bit more because I've heard you describe that California experience as your hippie period. Right, right, right. Also. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, do you feel like you were at a point in your life where you were more open to embracing mm. art in a different way and, and acting? I think I was definitely very, very open emotionally and looking also for the calling, if you can say it like that. Because I was, you know... I also had a boyfriend at that time who was American and we were traveling around. And as we all are in our end teens, beginning 20s, it's like seeking, trying to break away from old patterns, from what you grew up with, from those roles and trying to, you know, for me, it was really exciting being in San Francisco area in those years and really thinking like, this is my home now. And I really um, felt I was finding myself and then in American as well, and then really finding my own voice, I really felt I found that at that theater school, through theater. So it was very hard coming back to Denmark, trying the theater school here in Copenhagen. It was a tough half year of going back into what I felt like was my old self and old patterns. And I felt like I had created this whole new little theater family in California. So, But that, of course, as soon as I entered the school, that became my new home. But I, I really didn't think Denmark was going to be my home. I was seeking different places. And you say that Denmark is your home, but you were, of course, born in Serbia. Serbia, yeah. yeah. And you moved here when you were one yeah. with your family. Yeah. What brought your parents to Denmark in the first place? Well, my dad, he was a uh, big journalist back in the 70s and 80s. He recently died. So I just actually, this January, February, I realized what a big cultural figure he was back in Belgrade in the 70s, 80s. And I heard for the first time his radio shows, which was really touching. But he worked a lot in his later years with tourism and came as an ambassador for Yugoslav tourism at the Yugoslav embassy in Denmark. And they came for a couple of years and uh, did not expect to stay here. But this war started and they decided to stay some more years and some more and it ended up with them opening up a travel agency called Quality Tours, <laughs> with Quality Tours around both through Danube and Volga River and, yeah, different places. So how strong was your sense of Serbian identity growing up in a Danish context? I mean, I, I, it was a very, very Serbian home I grew up with. We grew up with speaking Serbian at home and Serbian traditions and also a Serbian upbringing, I think, in the sense of, you know, I remember always, you know, thinking it was very different than my Danish friends. 
I mean, some of my closest friends were also non-Danish when I grew up, but there was that thing of changing your whole life to a different country. And we really grew up with a discipline and having to work hard for what you want and what you believe in with a lot of love, but a lot of, you know, you got to work hard. And my dad was also older from an older generation. So that also, you know, yeah, very, very ambitious man, very, very big personality. I also think it, of course, has its negative sides as well, but it, it definitely is a big part of why I got so far in my career, because that kind of, you just got to keep going. And he always said also, like, it doesn't matter what you want to be or what you're going to do. You just need to do the best in what you choose in life or give all you have. So I, I think I did that. Um, but uh, of course, sometimes it has its backlash as well later on. So yeah, it was a Serbian upbringing, very Serbian. I mean, we grew up with the Serbian at home, but not really speaking Serbian in public because of the time. And my parents were, of course, very much against the whole regime, Milosevic regime. So we went often down also for demonstrations. And for me growing up, the war was, you know, it wasn't present physically, but emotionally, of course, it was there in the house. And that Fear and anxiety was a part of those years a lot emotionally. Did you then ever feel alienated growing up in Denmark when trying? I mean, to- I always felt a bit, you know, not completely Serbian, not completely Danish. There were parts of me really wanting to go down and fight with my cousins and be there. And but again, I didn't really understand what was going on. And I also always had this little bit, maybe bad conscious of, of having so much and having these opportunities and we could have easily stayed in Serbia, you know, and then I was lucky that we had the possibility to stay here and growing up with so many opportunities and always having food and clothes and all this and more than that. So it was this weird mix of being proud, but also feeling a bit ashamed of having these opportunities and Of course, it also gives a humbleness, I think, and a richness of growing up with two cultures that are so different. And with the Danishness, you know, I am Danish, but of course there are parts of me that really feel maybe not so connected and maybe more in a spiritual way. Yeah, so it's a kind of a mix trying to take the best of of both worlds. (laughs) And I presume you very much still have strong bonds down there with family. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's been a while now because of our situation. But for sure, yeah. And I did my first work in Serbian and Croatian two summers ago, which was a very big thing for me. Very big thing, actually. Doing a first film role in Serbia about a little family in um, Kosovo war in the beginning of, do you say zeros? Yeah, we yeah, can say the that. zeros, which was, uh, yeah, that was very, very powerful to, uh, you know, also a bit, I'm, I, I can feel I have a, You know, it's hard going down to make a movie about a certain period. My last thing I want is to take any political side or for me, it's important of saying yes to these films is, of course, you know, if I see a human universal story in this film, uh, it's a very vulnerable subject. Also, me as a Danish person with Serbian roots, it's, it's, you know, it's it's a very yeah vulnerable subject. But I did it and it was a, a beautiful, powerful experience to actually also act in Serbian because I feel like I'm maybe 10 years old, 13 in Serbian, you know, um, because I, I have only spoken it with family. So my vocabulary is very limited. So in that sense, it was, again, refinding that voice and that part of myself 
And it gave me a huge self-confidence in that part of me. Was it something that you actively sought out? Not actively, but in a way I've been dreaming actually of being able to act in my mother tongue. So it came at a perfect timing. And then another movie, which is premiering soon, a Croatian movie called Murina, which was about a family in a little Croatian island. It was very, very interesting doing that role because it's so far from the roles we get here in Scandinavia, which are often very powerful, leading women who have a lot to say and who, you know, whereas this role in the Croatian movie was powerful in its own way, but, you know, is also in a very patriarchal kind of structure of a relationship and is got pregnant a 16-year-old and lives in a very Catholic little island and hasn't grown up with these opportunities and doesn't have maybe the self-worth of what could I do if I left my family or if I went on my own with my child. You know, those possibilities are not even in her consciousness. And for me to go do that was, that was really interesting, very beautiful to find the power and the vulnerability in the quiet and the more silent character, which triggered a lot of things in me in the beginning because I thought, why can't she just say something? Why, you know, get up and leave and take your child, which is this naive first reaction I had. But when you then really let yourself go into the actual reality of these women growing up in this way, it's like, how do I find her power in situations that seem really not empowering? That was a beautiful challenge, really. Hmm. On a purely practical level, I'm fascinated by how one finds their voice as an actor yeah. when suddenly working with another language. Right. I note that in the past you said that switching from English to Danish was like mm. needing to find a new way to retune your instrument. That's true. Yeah. I remember in the beginning coming from doing all these crazy characters at school in English and then coming to Denmark. I don't know. There was something about the... I mean, it's a smaller country. It's a smaller culture. I think that in itself gives a feeling of, oh, there's not as much elasticity than in English. So that was definitely something I, I, uh, I can still feel sometimes. I mean, I even feel like when we see Chutlandic, a, a Yusk, when you hear this accent, the which other is side of the, country, the yeah. other side of the country, you know, when you hear that on screen, you know, it's still not really accepted as a series, like a, it's almost comic. And it's still on stage, if we hear a, any other accent than Copenhagen accent, it's still a bit, you know, not really being taken so seriously, which is in a way really sad and strange and that we can't hear Danish with Serbian accent or any, you know, it's there, it's still very rigid, I think, in a way, which is really sad. Does it change your approach at all when preparing for a role? Not really, no. But it was, you know, very interesting to try speaking in Serbian and Croatian. It hit different parts of me, like saying mom in Serbian or saying dad in Serbian has a complete different, you know, it just hits in a different way because that's what I grew up with. So also much more vulnerable because I feel more exposed in a way because I'm not as, just not as certain in the language, but it's also... I'm a daughter in Serbian. I'm not my fully grown self. I will always, in a way, be younger in that language. And it's going to be a something connected to family always, because I've not really found myself in that language beyond my family. So it definitely just opened a different side of me, for sure. So going back to your teenage years, where you were growing up 
with parents who are very successful within the worlds of journalism and tourism. Right, yeah. I'm curious what then triggered your interest in becoming a documentary filmmaker. Yeah. What was that? I mean, I, that came much later. I had many, many different dreams also of becoming a tulk. Uh, how do you say that? Like translator. A translator. Um, being a French teacher. <laughs> I had some, a vet as well. I had many, many dreams. But I think it came from all the traveling later, the feeling of wanting to do documentaries because we were so lucky to really travel a lot through my whole childhood and see different parts of the world. So maybe it was, I think it came from that, basically. I don't know. I just think in general as well, growing up with these really big personalities, also the Serbian culture, and there was a lot of <laughs> things to look up to. Uh, a lot of stories being told. I think really my parents and, and their friends, and it was just big uh, storytellers, really. We spend a lot of time hearing anecdotes on anecdotes. And we're talking from way back in rise of communism. You know, it's like these crazy pieces of history you hear about growing up. When you talk about these larger-than-life characters in the yeah. family unit, yeah. what was your role within the family? Did you ever feel stifled? Were you more the quiet listener? Or? I was very <laughs> – it was hard to get a word in, I must say. It was like, dad, 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 listen – um, so you, you automatically became a bit the listener, um, but, uh, it always challenged you to really discuss, you know, the art of discussion. It wasn't as if we had this patriarch in the family who said what we had to think or what we had to do. It wasn't at all in that sense, but a big personality, you know, had his opinions and, and also with my mother driving us to school, it was always, they always made us very aware of what was going on politically and a lot of discussions, definitely. But yeah, I think growing up, I was definitely more the listener, a bit shyer than I am now. But uh, yeah, you had to kind of uh, use your elbows a bit to be heard. Well, you certainly were well and truly heard when you broke out in the role of Lulu yeah, in yeah. the Royal Theatre yeah. production. <laughs> yeah. Just as you were finishing your study, as I understand. Right, right yeah. What do you remember of that experience? Because it's oh it's almost God. a it was a, it's almost most, a famed production. It was an ways. insane debut. Uh, really, really was in many levels. Yeah, I was still at school finishing my last year, and you know I was totally just in awe of getting this role and on my dream stage in the Royal Theatre. And you know I was working before I came into the school at this theatre and was just you know always dreaming to come up there. And so it was a huge, huge, huge thing, but. Also a very, very big role, Lulu, you know, a very big role for me and uh, very, very challenging. And then we started and it was full of improv with Catherine Villemin, the director, so fun, so light, a lot of improvs. And then when we got closer to the actual premiere, a lot of things went wrong, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, it was hard to also come in, of course, you know, with these grand old actors who, you know, it was tough work in the beginning. And then unfortunately, we had a huge accident on stage. We had these three walls in the sonography that had to fall outwards, like as if, you know, it's all falling apart in the third act. And one of the walls fell inwards towards us, the actors. And I was luckily sitting a meter, like all way up on, on stage having a moment. And I just hear people screaming 
in the back and uh, I turn around and I see the huge wall and I see the amazing actor Sunset Alessin laying under it and I just hear him singing, humming something and people just screaming, running around and I understand what's going on. At first I thought it was like part of the, was it a new note that people had to scream? Like I didn't, and that was, I mean, it was, this cannot happen. It just cannot happen on stage. So it was, it was just shocking. And there was, you know, he was, I knew I could hear him humming. So I knew he wasn't dead, but you know, everybody looking at it thought he was dead. So it was just, you know, we had some trauma therapy afterwards for some weeks and he luckily survived and got through heavy, heavy rehabilitation and, and it almost killed another actor. Bori Ljelsen was, a, I don't know, a centimeter from being hit on the head. You know, it's horrible, horrible. So I think we all had this feeling of we will never do theater again. You know, it was just so horrifying that this happened. And it just felt so cursed in a way, this production, you know, and it's Lulu, it's a heavy piece and Whew. And uh, on top of that, of course, I had my whole inner turmoil of like, fuck, being so nervous and so filled with anxiety. And and then slowly, you know, even San Sita wanted us to proceed with, the, you know, slowly we, okay, we are proceeding after I think four weeks. And I remember the first time going to the stage again and people were, it was just, everything was vulnerable. It was like walking on glass afterwards. And uh, we took it all very differently, how we reacted to it. And I tried to just like, okay, back, you know, I need to go on stage again and just get over the fear. And some people might have found that offensive. And, you know, it was just, we were all in so different emotional states. And, and also I remember feeling a bit guilty of, and I'm the main actor. And do they think it's because I want to, you know, there was just all these awful, bad anxiety thoughts. But we did have a premiere again and uh, with help with therapy and a lot of group meetings. And and even at the premiere, we had a part of the sonography that got stuck. So it was almost like, of course, but of course, you know. But then after a week or two of playing, it, it slowly became a joy again. It was really tough. It was really a crazy debut. It was so, so tough. I think I feel like I've aged five years at that piece. And on top of that, it was just such a huge role. I was really green and new and, you know, that in itself was a huge thing. So it was, yeah, that was insane. Baptism of fire. Yeah, yeah, insane. Really, really. And then again, that whole thing of suddenly for the first time, getting reviews and how do I actually, do I read them? I was completely open. You know, I read everything. I felt any criticism was because of me. I felt, oh fuck, maybe I need to. And even if there was something good, then I became self-conscious. You know, I just, I just was completely open. It's way too open for everything. So uh, I really learned some lessons at that point. What is your relationship like with criticism today? I think it's much better. I've kind of, in general, found a bigger... Um, I had many years where I was like, just had a really hard time with decision-making and knowing what to do and which way to go. And In terms and, of approaching a specific character or yeah, a project? Also that, but also what to say yes to. And 
a lot of overthinking and, and yeah, just a lot of bad overthinking actually, where it didn't really help me, you know, and, and maybe also taking in too many opinions of other people. You know, I had always like 10 people I would talk to about everything. And it's just, it's just not healthy. It's not good. So I felt like I was a bit outside of myself, always seeking for, what do you think? What about you? What? Yeah, that's true as well. What about, oh, he says this and yeah, maybe that's true as well. You know, just confusion, total confusion where I've been much better at knowing my worth now as an actor as well and with my craft and just a bigger calmness in it. I, I still, of course, it's not like I'm, I still have all my doubts and all my, you know, everything that comes with it, but it's with a different approach. But with criticism, yeah, I, I, I try not to read and take in too much. And I, f first and foremost, always try to ask myself, how do I honestly feel about what I did and how it went? And it's always so special, especially with films and TV, you know, because you've done something and after two years, it comes out or a year or one and a half year. And so much has happened and you constantly evolve in life and therefore also as an actor. So it, I think it's important to know what you I ask myself, what do I really think of it? Am I proud of it? What chances did I miss? Not only in the work in itself, but also the process and the research and the communication with the, the co-actors, with the director, all of this. So I think that's important to ask yourself first and then great if it corresponds to reviews and all that, but if it doesn't, you know. But of course it's vulnerable. It's always vulnerable knowing that some people like you, some people don't. And that's just, that's part of it. You mention it being particularly difficult with film and television. Yeah. I'm really interested in how you deal with, in many cases, not being able to control the final output. Right, yeah. Because you work on these highly collaborative projects and you can absolutely master your role, mm. but ultimately the film itself can maybe miss the mark. I mean, is it not frustrating? That's, no, no, of course it's frustrating when you feel like, oh, I didn't, it just needed this last whatever, you know, but, but it's, it's hard to say. You take chances, you, you choose, and that's why it's so important, I think, to really know where you're choosing from in a project. And it's fine to choose out of, I'm doing a money job or I'm doing a more, you know, but, but just that you know within yourself why you're saying yes to a role, whether it's like these actors are incredible, I've dreamt of working with this director, or um, maybe the script lacks. But if you know why you say yes, then you know that, yeah, it can go all kinds of ways at the end. That's not really the point, because you never know what's going to happen with the end product, and that's not why you do it, really. So with that said, over this period of learning what you particularly look for in a role, mm. what is the Danica checklist or priority hierarchy? I think right now I'm in a place where I'm definitely trying to really choose from my heart a bit more. I had, you know, many years where I've said yes, 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 yes to many things, which I don't regret at all. And I've learned from all of them. But now I think I'm in a place where I want to use my energy really on the projects and the roles that really speak to me, maybe on a deeper level, basically that speak to my heart. And um, that's hard. I don't know how, you know, I'm trying to really do that right now. Hmm. Are you someone who manages regret well? Mm, no. No, definitely not. No, I'm definitely overthinking a lot of 
Um, again, I think I'm better at it because I've really dealt bad with regretting things and why didn't I and I should have and if I have done that. But it's just so draining. It's so draining and it doesn't make sense. Whatever happened, happened and there's probably a reason for it and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't. So it, 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 I've been better again at dealing with it. But again, the first years after school, it was very bad with regret. Um, but it's better. It's better. You mentioned the first years after school. Obviously, in 2014, you burst onto the scene with a number of mm. big feature films, one of them being Billy August's Silent Heart. Mm. I'm interested in this because it's early days for you, but you're suddenly surrounded by a cast of these Danish legends, Gita Nørbu, mm. Morten Kornvall, Papa Christine. Mm. It just looks like an acting masterclass. Did it feel like that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was definitely a sponge that was just taking in everything I could. And that was also definitely my approach to these amazing actors. You know, I was really there to learn. I was very open about that. No, it was it was crazy. It was just these actors that I've been looking up to for so long. And uh, luckily, they liked me. You know, <laughs> if they didn't, I think it would have been really tough. Um, but also, I was also proud of that I was able to again, hold my own space and take the space that I needed. That probably came from the Lulu experience. You know, I felt like I also came with what was me in the movie. So off the back of that, you are nominated as one of the shining star talents for Berlinale mm -hmm. and so much buzz around you and so much momentum. I noted that you said in 2016 mm -hmm. that through a combination of personal mm. loss and pain mm. that you were really forced to reassess mm. your own identity mm. and what you stood for in terms of values and mm. what your work meant for you. Right. Can you share what you feel comfortable? Yeah. I mean, about? yeah, I think I've uh, also, as we talked about, you know, my upbringing was just working and going forward and just success and never stopping, you know, that has its backlash, which is, well, what happens when you suddenly can't? And what happens when you're faced with a horrible breakup or a heartache or a losing, you know, th th many things happen at that point, which I just didn't, I wasn't ready for that. I didn't know how to cope with it really. And uh, yeah, a big relationship stopped that I was with many, many years and, you know, who also really kind of was a very, very big mentor for me as well in all those years at school and right after. And I, I almost felt like, well, I can't do it alone. I need that support and that moral and emotional support. And then my childhood friend's mother, who was my piano teacher and almost like a mother to me as well, passed away very suddenly. And my dad had a very serious stroke that almost killed him. And that basically happened in the same half year, those three things. And it was just insane. And I, I, I just didn't know how to cope with it. I was emotionally completely, yeah, it was this zombie years, not years, but definitely a year that was completely insane. And I was actually supposed to do Blanche in a <laughs> streetcar named Desire in the midst of all that. And I just remember for the first time, and it sounds really like a cliche in a way, but it really felt like I cannot be Blanche. Like I cannot privately go into, I mean, I was very young for this role, but that was a different take on the, on the whole role. And, you know, but of a woman who's losing her sexuality, who's deeply alone, who's uh, desperate trying to hold on to, you know, it was just, I just remember being like, I, I can't be her, right? I, I can't. And 
remember the director trying really to, but, but you know, use your own, uh, you know, try to transform. It's like, I, I can't, I can't, I, even though it was my dream role, it was like the biggest, I, you know, I came into the school with that, but it was like a dream role, but I just, it was too much of saying those words and, and, you know, I remember improvs of walking around trying to find my space with all these cups. Like it was, it was just too intense. And I, you know, at the end, I couldn't do it, unfortunately. And was a horrible co-actor. Like, I, I wasn't present. I wasn't, you know, I had to smoke every five minutes. And yeah, it was, it was tough. And also, again, the family structure changed privately, completely, both losing a big relationship, which forces you to, like, what is my identity now? Who am I? Who was it I was? What? Okay, now I'm on my own. How does that work? Finding that worth in myself, which is scary, but really, really important. And then also having the kind of center of the family being split up in a new family structure as well. And having to take care of my father as well. You know, suddenly he was a child. He lost his, his language. He lost ability to move. I always called him, you know, the king of anecdotes who suddenly had no words. It was just so wild. And of course, up to that point, work has been my identity. It was really all I've been, that was all on my mind. There was not room for anything else. And I think in a basic way, it changed those things, you know. So yeah, and now it's a different thing. You know, my father passed away some months ago. So now it's kind of a new family structure and knowing that things have an end and how do you want to spend your time with the people you love and how do you get most most of it while you're here and saying in that sense yes to things that really matter roles that really where i see a potential of growth and a potential of going into different parts of myself and exploring different things yeah i think that's all connected I can't imagine the sadness of losing a parent. Mm. I was just curious whether when you lost your father mm. earlier this year, whether you felt that you were more equipped as a person having gone through what you went through in 2016. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely yes, because it really felt like the bottom. Um, definitely. And, and in a way, I felt like I lost him in many ways back then because he personally, I was very, very grateful for having these five years with him where I feel like I've gained so much intimacy with him. He was always this man that was that I looked up to, but never had this kind of physically intimate relationship with. And and regaining that these years of you know being able to lay in his arms and give him food and and just nourish him and you know this closeness of like also being able to remember, because this was my big fear, I, I will not remember how he smells like or how his skin feels like. And those things are just just really incredible that we gained this, even though it was so hard these years. And he also, you know, became much more present, you know, and aware of plants and aware of watering plants or the garden or the dog. Um, there was a different depth to him. Work did not exist and he was the biggest workhorse ever. You know, he was the big boss. He always talked about work, always with us and work, always discussing, going forward, forward, forward. And all of a sudden he was observing life and he was present and he, work didn't exist anymore. 
it's just such a beautiful, <laughs> that was very beautiful as well. And my mom also said, you know, suddenly she, she could recognize the man she fell in love with, which is so beautiful, you know, that kind of um, clean, also in a way, very childish openness to the world, which is hard in one way because there's a part of the consciousness that's different, but he was there and his humor was there. And even the last tough months at the hospital, his personality was there very much. He had his toothpicks all the time in his in his mouth, always toothpicks and his Rolex watch. And um, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank yeah, you for it, sharing it, that. Yeah, it was, yeah. And I think all of that, it changes you, of course, in many ways. But I think also because of going through that back then and and also being present in each step of his disease has helped the sorrow process now a lot. You had to say no to the role of Blanche, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but shortly thereafter you took on a huge role, being the titular role in Darling, yeah. Birgitta Stamos' film. Right. The role was that of a prima ballerina who herself was going through a major identity crisis, mm. the result of an injury and a potential imminent end to her career. You obviously undertook a huge physical transformation yeah. for that role. Can you just share a little bit about the process of becoming Darling and how you went about entering her world? Well, it was uh, it was an incredible challenge when you get... I mean, it's just incredible as an actor to get a role where you also physically need to do such a great transformation. It's not often you get these kinds of roles. And a ballet dancer couldn't be more extreme because it's like, you know, you can see right away, do you look like a ballet dancer or you don't? And to get that authentic portrait of a ballet dancer, of course I needed to go, go far. I, I mean, I knew I couldn't dance even one step of ballet in half a year, but all my training went on how do I walk as a ballerina, as a dancer, how do I sit, like all about posture and about how I ate, how I, you know, all of this. And uh, no, it was incredible. And also, especially going through what I was going through, it was very transformative and very kind of cleansing of just like, there's a great freedom also in that kind of pattern. I'm training from eight to 10, then I do this, I swim, then I eat this, then, you know, that in that control, almost like militant discipline, yeah, it just gave me, wow, okay, let's do it. It was almost this battle to fight. But then, of course, when we started filming, I remember just during the film and after filming, it was very hard to get out of it all of a sudden because it's filled half a year of your life and it becomes a lifestyle of going out with friends. Is like, could I just have a piece of lettuce, please, <laughs> with nothing on it? It's really bad. It's so not me. I love food. I love you know, drinking, you know. I'm very social, and so it was definitely a challenge to, uh, yeah. And then, you know, at the same hand, that kind of control took over a little bit, I remember, because one thing is going into a role, getting ready for a role, but then what about afterwards? Now I have to gain weight, and how do I do that? And I remember after a month, I was like, I gained maybe two kilos, and I was like, that's fine, you know. And I was really underweight, you know. Is it true you'd lost 14 kilograms? Yeah, 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 it was too much, like crazy. And I just, afterwards I could find, you know, I lost my period in those months. And I was like, that's weird. You know, went to the doctor and was like, maybe I should start a hormone. And they were like, you just, you're underweight still. And I remember just couldn't, you know, I think I'm fine, you know, gain two, three kilos. And that was like, still so underweight. And, you know, my period came as soon as I hit my normal weight, which was 
six months later. So it was just so crazy, that whole physical aspect of it. But entering that whole world, ballet world, was just, of course, a gift, incredible. I mean, insane. Insane. Were you then surprised by how much inhabiting that character had distorted your own sense of body image? Yeah, but when you live such a controlled life for over half a year, it goes to your brain. I mean, I remember having a moment also of like, oh no, I ate too many grapes. I need to throw up. You know, these thoughts of like, what? No, stop, stop it. But because you're in such a controlled, okay, it's it's also an extreme role. I mean, a ballet dancer, you especially when I'm not dancing, you know, when I need to get to that point under half a year, it is not the most healthiest thing to do, of course. I mean, we try to do it in a healthy way, but of course it's not losing so many kilos in so short amount of time, but it just goes to your head, you know, when it's such a specific, controlled, extremely disciplined life you lead for half a year. It's like, oh, okay, suddenly gaining weight is very much just one kilo, two kilos feels like it's almost harder to gain it again. But of course it gave just a great authenticity and and so much for the character, of course. And for me, it wasn't even a question whether I should do it. It's like, of course, if (laughs) if I'm supposed to portray a leading dancer like that, I I need to have intense training and intense transformation of the body. Hmm. What's your favorite part of the process, Danica, as an actor? Yeah, I mean, I think in theater, for me, the whole rehearsal period is just the most amazing. Then you have the premiere then. Yeah, yeah, you're playing it, you know. But for me, the whole, uh, especially in theater, because you basically spend six weeks of really taking the material to its extremes and seeing how far, how little, how, you know, this, I, I love this work and this form of improvisation until finding, oh, there it is. And then the big challenge is afterwards, how do you improvise within those structures afterwards? But in films, it almost feels like that happens with each take. It, of course, depends on the director and what kind of work she or he does. But there it's like often when you're lucky, you have rehearsals, which I love having, you know, but it's not always you have that. So it happens. It's like reminding yourself of each take can be a a little different nuance, different color, different goal, maybe also to, to have different cards to play with, which I love. Is it theatre performances where you really feel you get to explore and improve your craft, would you say? I think so, yeah. It's in a different way, I feel, with with film because it's also an improvement of the craft all the time in a way, but it's in a different scale, whereas in theatre, of course, you have, because of the nature of theatre, of sitting with a huge crowd and there's a room and there's a voice that needs to fill the room and a body that needs to fill the room, you have responsibility in a different way of this whole night's performance. There's not an editor and a light. You know, it's, it's like you're just there with your co-actor on a stage with an audience. And that's the beauty of theater, that really dense now you're in together, which I really, really miss. Um, yeah, it's definitely a different responsibility. Hmm. What's the best compliment that someone can pay you after a performance? I mean, it must have to do with the story of being hit, whether it's, emotionally, intellectually, however you're hit by the story, then you know you have that I have done my work. I mean, that is what acting is about, really, serving a story. Um, and of course, with your own inner life and 
authenticity and whatever, you know, that, that you can give it all kinds of nuances and take it to places, you know, we're all different actors, we all have different personalities, so I could take it a different way than another actor could. That's to do with my personality and where I come from. That, yeah, that's the beauty of it. I wondered whether we could talk briefly about your experience of working on the big US series, mm. The Mist. Right. Because I noted when you relocated to North America for that project in 2017, you said it felt somewhat like a rebirth for you. Well, um, for me, it was just an amazing thing to actually, you know, the big challenge was definitely playing a American character who had no, uh, it wasn't a Danish American, it was a, you know, American character. That was a huge challenge in itself. And, and I think this rebirth thought was the fact of going to, we were filming in Nova Scotia and Halifax and not knowing anybody there, you know, and not having any, you know, here in Copenhagen, I have a career going and coming there and being like blank slate, completely new. And it was really, really uh, amazing feeling, but also challenging, lonely, all kinds of things, you know, coming there. And, and my good friend, Christian Tolpe, who was the showrunner and had written it, was was there, which was amazing. And But I didn't think so much about like, oh my God, this is my ticket into Hollywood or something, you know. I was very focused on how do I sound in the American... <laughs> Well, I read also that you mentioned that there were some things about the American approach to production that you mm. perhaps didn't enjoy so much in comparison to what you were accustomed to in Denmark. Yeah. You know, of course, when you're on a big project like that, it's like, shut up and do your lines. Just do your job. That was really a good reminder of like, because here we have, a. I, I don't know, I think here in Scandinavia, we are very... We don't have this hierarchy of power as we do there. I mean, our projects are maybe, I don't know if it's the scale of the projects, but, you know, here we're very like in eyesight, you know, also with the director and with all, you know, we can talk very openly. There's, there's not things I feel like you can say and can't say. And I think that's part of the beauty of Danish culture as well. We're all like fuck authorities in a way. We're all equal. And I felt there, it was definitely a different kind of, yeah, a hierarchy of power. And it was definitely also just before Me Too broke out. And that was, I thought I could feel that. And I had never felt that before in the industry, really. And there, you know, I had some, <laughs> yeah, I could I could feel that because of that hierarchy of power, there were, yeah, it was even more important to stay connected to myself and what I thought. And luckily I said what I thought, but also just did the job. I'm not going to discuss any lines. I'm not. I'm just going to do it and do my best in that. And that was a great challenge in itself. What was your experience of the Me Too movement in Denmark then? Because it felt like it came slightly later. Yeah. No, I just remember in in at the Mist there were you know I just small. It wasn't like some big things, but I just there were some remarks here and there, and that that just made me. I just remember first time being suddenly conscious of like, whoa, that was a weird remark. Um, from some higher people, which made me actually for the first time really get more conscious about, oi, that, that, I didn't see that coming. Uh, and I just, you know, said, uh, I just uh, stopped it and kind of joked about it, luckily. But I could just, I just remember thinking a lot about it those months. And that was basically half a year or a year before Me Too came out, which was kind of interesting that that was also where it kind of opened my eyes because of the hierarchy that I felt there was. And that hasn't been an issue in Danish film? I didn't feel 
I mean, I haven't, uh, I don't have personal experience with it directly. Of course, a way of talking there has been, and there is a way of joking and all this I, I knew about, but not an actual, not an, but I've heard stories from close colleagues where it's, it, it, of course it happens everywhere, but I really feel that it's been, there's a consciousness of how we work now that is just so important. There's a consciousness, there's a way of, of talking openly about power structures. And I really feel that's a big difference that's happened, that it's like there's an actual open talk about this now at work that hasn't been there before, which is due to this movement. Have you felt that there's been a lack of interesting female roles available to you? Yeah, definitely. And especially women of color and women of, of, uh, and that's not only women, that's in general in Denmark that we're still far behind with this. Yeah, I have Serbian roots, but I'm white and I'm, you know, I, it's in that sense, I'm, you know, when people try to use that card with me, like, oh, it's the, <laughs> Do it's they? the well, sometimes, you know, but, but, but prior, just when I came out, it was very much like that I had non-Western roots and all this shit. Um, where it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, non-Western. Um, but um, no, I think we're definitely better at it. And a lot of stuff is happening of interesting female leads, definitely. But women of color and all, it's, it's, we're far behind still. Hmm. Last year, Danica, you were given the great honor of receiving the Danish Crown Prince and Princesses. Yeah annual culture award. Mm. As part of that, I'm just curious when you find out that the crown prince Frederick is going to come by for a coffee and have a chat. (laughs) I'm so nervous. I actually drank rakia in the morning. I really did. I was a bit drunk, I think. Is is that your primal Serbian coping mechanism? Because we have a rakia that is made on my dad's family's farmhouse. So it's it's a very, (laughs) it's a power drink. And uh, it, it sounds like I'm this drinker right now. I'm not. But actually when I'm really, really nervous, I actually take a little half sip of Arakia because it, it just starts my system really well. But uh, I was very nervous this morning. And also because we had like PT agents in, and I'm living in this, you know, it's a small little houses community and small little garden, you know, and they came like, you know, I don't know how many PT agents looking everything, being in the gardens. It's just so <laughs> absurd. And then just being so nervous of, of, because it's all filmed and it's in my house. It's very personal. And, you know, and I was like, oh, is it too personal being at my house? Is it too much? Or, But I went with it and he came. And the first thing I did was like almost giving him a hug. And they were like, stop, cut, cut. Don't <laughs> touch him. Corona. Like, don't. You cannot. Um, I'm like, sorry. I'm sorry. I've been tested. I'm fine. You know. And then let's do it again. And he knocked on the door again. And hello. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> so it was a very... But he was so sweet and it was so down to earth. I was a bit nervous in the beginning because I I, I was, you know, his, uh, what do you call these advisors told me, just don't ask too much, you know, just stay on your own half. And so I don't know, I was a bit nervous. Am I asking too much or making him feel uncomfortable or something? But it totally went, it was really nice and fun. And I gave him some Raki as well. So that was good. What does that mean to you to receive an award like that? Well, it was a very, very big thing because it, I don't know, for me, it was, my speech was also a little bit about this. One thing is, which is a huge honor of getting an acting prize, but this was a cultural prize. 
it brings a kind of responsibility that I, yeah, big responsibility in some way. Also, especially when you have, you get actual five minutes live in front of Denmark, you know, to say what you think about the state of the culture right now, which was really, you know, I spent a lot, a lot of time of writing down what I think about this time and how, what we're in and making it personal. But also I was very conscious about wanting to be political, but not directly political, not being in the, you know, the culture is not getting money and whatever, but really trying to speak again from the heart and, and try to say why it is important and why we need it for, you know, spirituality basically in our humanity. And so it was, it was a very beautiful thing to both get that award and, but also really have this time to actually write down what was on my heart and my mind. And I don't know, I thought a lot about my parents and them coming to Denmark and changing their life. And then I'm standing there with this cultural prize 35 years later, you know, it is, I don't know, that was a very, it was very emotional in some way. What was the key message you wanted to send with that platform? The key message was that art basically is the connector to our humanity and our empathy. And that the work for me acting is really of going into the full emotional landscape of another person and that in itself evokes empathy and for people watching people on stage acting or on film the big thing is you realize you're not alone with your emotions and that means being human and i i also talked about in the speech of my family in bosnia who survived the war and you know they said even in the worst time of almost not having anything to drink or eat they wanted to create a child and do music and write poetry that was just like, if we didn't do that, we would lose our sanity. Like we would just be animals. And for me, that just stuck with me since. And I brought this into the speech of saying, you know, even in, in especially in these times of just despair of, of loneliness. And, and this is a different kind of war we're in now. It's so, so important for our humanity, for our hearts, for our spirituality to connect with the arts. And we do it all the time without maybe being conscious about it, where we use it constantly to connect with our emotions and with each other. And it's basically understanding the deep value of that in our society. And that's what the art form of acting for me is about and why it's constantly evolving me and, and why I love it so much because it constantly reconnects me with my own humanity and where I am and constantly faces me with my own everything. Hmm. Just in closing, Danica, when... Preparing for this conversation, I read a lot of articles and reviews, and the word uncompromising mm. is often used to describe you and the approach you take to your craft. Mm. I'm just curious what that means to you when you hear mm. it. Well, for me, it means going fully into, Im immersing myself fully into a role Um yeah, I think it's the full immersion in the work. I think that's what it means to me. And have you sensed as you've gotten older that your emotional register mm. is broader? Just yes, for sure. For sure. Yeah, definitely. And immersion is not only emotionally, but in all aspects, also intellectually, analytic, whatever, physically. But I definitely feel a, what do you say, like the tool is sharpened every time I can feel that. But, you know, I still feel that I have many rooms within 
maybe that's the best way of saying it, that I still yet have to discover from where I am personally as well, privately in my own life. And I'm really, um, yeah, looking forward what happens also with my craft as those doors open within myself that I maybe still haven't fully opened yet. Well, we look forward to watching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me too. Danica, I just can't say how grateful I am for yeah, you taking the you. time. Of course. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.